Well, we come this morning in John chapter 6, the gospel lesson. We come to the well-known and quite long discourse of Jesus on the bread of life. Uh, we only read half of it. And to keep, to keep this manageable, we'll look at the first half today, and Lord willing, the second part next week. But before we get to this discourse, I want to point out two things. First, having seen the, the miracle of the loaves last week, the feeding of the 5,000, we kind of felt that there was more going on there than meets the eye. And here in this text, we find out just what it is, just what this more is. So the feeding of the 5,000 is explained or illuminated by this long dialogue. And secondly, notice this. Though Jesus speaks at length, this is a dialogue. He's interrupted. He's asked questions. And we're told, you won't see it in in today's reading, but we're told at the very end of the discourse in verse 59, that Jesus spoke all this in the synagogue at Capernaum. So this is an example of what was known as the freedom of the synagogue. The synagogue was a teaching environment with a fair amount of actual back and forth. Uh, Much more like akin to like a lively Sunday school class than a sermon. Nevertheless, I'm not going to be fielding any questions uh, during the the sermon. This will be a monologue. Though I'll be happy to take questions in the Sunday school class. But with that, I want to make two points. They're on the back inside page of the bulletin. The bread of life, I mean the giver of bread and the bread itself. The giver of bread and the bread itself. So first, the giver of bread. The crowds ask, Rabbi, when did you get here? You know the old adage that there's no such thing as a dumb question. I don't think Jesus believes that. (laughs) Or at least... He believes there's lots of irrelevant questions. Or maybe more simply, he believes there's lots of questions he's just not going to answer. This is yet another one. Yet another one. He decides he's going to unmask instead their motivations for coming and redirect the whole conversation. I mean, it's a simple enough question. It seems to me a fair question. When did you get here? And we don't get, oh, I got here a couple hours ago. We get this. We get this. You're looking for me not because you saw the signs that I perform, you know, that I perform, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. It's a very forceful, direct opening, right? And, and the sense of it is, you're looking for me not because you understood the significance of the signs, right? But because you have, as we saw last week, you have a materialistic kind of worldly political view of the kingdom. Do you know in Mark's gospel we're told that even the disciples did not understand the loaves and that their hearts were hardened? Bread and power, we saw that. He can make bread, let's make him king. And so Jesus has to direct them rather sharply here and us to a different kind of bread. He wants to talk about a different kind of bread. And he says, again, with a sort of absolute sharp contrast, do not work for the food that spoils or the food that perishes. Notice the force of that. Do not work for the food that perishes. Of course, he doesn't mean that you shouldn't earn a living. 
But he puts it absolutely to make his point stark. Right? This is known as holy hyperbole. Right? Don't work for earthly bread. How's that for a book title on your vocation? Right? God and your work. Here's my book on God and your work. Don't work for earthly bread. We could use a book like this, really, to counter the spate of books which tell, tell us all the time about how our work is so important and it's all part of God's kingdom. Well, yes, sure, fine, there's a place for that. But there's also a place to hear these words. Don't work for earthly bread. Right? In a sea of people telling us just how important it is that we work for the earthly bread, here's another voice. Don't work for food that perishes. It's a stark contrast. The crowd is pursuing, with all of their energy and labor, earthly food. But Lord, the quarterly productivity numbers are down. Jesus wants to talk about food of a different order. And he never does it the way we do it, right? The way we do it would be like this. Yes, of course, it's very important that you work for your earthly food. I have a stack of books on how important the Christian vocation of work is. In addition to that, however, it's important to occasionally remember that there's this other thing called heavenly food. Jesus is not that kind of teacher. He's more a prophetic teacher. He wants to blow up your whole conception and send you reeling. So he says to the crowds, don't work for earthly food. He wants to talk about food from a different order. Have you ever noticed that there is no eschatological food network? That's the reason Jesus fed people, the 5,000, with loaves and fishes. No one understood this. Work for the food, he says. Instead, right? don't work for this kind of food. Don't work for it. Instead, work or labor for the food that endures to eternal life, which I, the Son of Man, will give you. It's not exactly a capitalist manifesto. Jesus is the giver of bread. The bread, he says, that endures to eternal life. The other kind of bread that you're working for spoils, he says. It can only nourish earthly life for a little while. No matter what you do, no matter how much you work, 2 Corinthians 4 says your outer man is decaying. Your inner man is being renewed while we look not at the things that are seen. For the things that are seen, 2 Corinthians 4, are transient. The things that are unseen are eternal. If you can see it, touch it, taste it, it's transient. But the crowds love it. They love the fading bread. And they have here then a fixation on miracles. And we should note this, that a fixation on miracles is actually corrosive. It undermines serious faith. It's earthly-minded, and we live by heavenly food. And so, this is why Jesus starts so sharply with this crowd, who had seen the feeding of the 5,000, and they're chasing him around the lake. 
And the crowd says, what must we do to do the works God requires? It seems like their thinking is something like this. If we have to work for this other food, Jesus, just tell us what the work is that we have to do and we'll get to it. Right? There's an incredible naivete here and an incredible overconfidence in their own ability. And Jesus says, the work of God is this. Here's the work I want you to do. Believe in the one he has sent. It's as if he's saying, it's a free meal, folks. You can't buy it. You can't earn it. And you can't labor for it. Put your wallet back in your pocket. And it's an insult to him to think they can merit this. What is required, the work, the thing that we must do and they must do is faith. And notice this in the text. Faith here has real concrete content. Believe, Jesus says, in the one, in the one whom the Father has sent. There's no belief in Jesus without believing in him as the son of the Father, the preexistent one sent by the Father. Belief in Jesus is by its very nature Trinitarian. It's belief in the Father. And this statement here is enormously important for understanding what happens later in this bread of life discourse. And let me just anticipate this for you a little bit. We'll see it much more next week. Eating and drinking Jesus' body and blood, for example, they are metaphors. Strong metaphors, to be sure, graphic metaphors, but they are metaphors for faith, right? for coming to Jesus for life. A fixation with earthly eating and drinking is to make the same mistake that the crowds make here. So let me reiterate, the thing, the singular thing God requires, the work, the thing apart from which it is impossible to please God, is living faith. So the crowds hear this, and they're tracking a little bit. They say, okay, why don't you give us a sign that we might believe? It's kind of astonishing. You would think the feeding of the 5,000 would have been enough. Apparently not. Right? And, and, you know, the feeding of the 5,000 wasn't enough for this. They, they, saw, they thought this guy might be a second Moses giving bread in the wilderness. And they bring the wilderness situation up. Notice they say, our ancestors ate manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven. It's an allusion to Exodus 16, which was our Old Testament lesson. So the crowd's saying something like, look, if you're greater than Moses, do a greater miracle. I mean, the, the, the 5,000 was nice, but jo- Moses made bread fall out of heaven. So we want a greater sign. So Jesus says, it's not Moses who gave you the bread, but it's my Father who's given you the true bread, meaning here, true bread, final bread, authentic bread. So the manna then... This is very important to get. The man is a picture or a type, a foreshadowing of Jesus. He's the true final bread. 
He's the bread of God who comes down from heaven and gives, unlike the manna, he gives eternal life to the world. It seems plain enough, but the people are still confused and earthly minded. They say in verse 34, sir, always give us this bread. They miss the fact that Jesus was alluding to himself. Right, so he's going to make that plain, and that brings me to the second point. Right? Here, Jesus puts it bluntly. I, verse 35, I am the bread of life. It's the first time he said this in the discourse, clearly. In other words, I'm the gift and the giver. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never thirst. Now, remember this. Recall this. Jesus had said that faith is required to get this bread. And that faith is believing that he was sent by the Father. Well, here he layers something on top of that. Here faith is coming to Jesus. right? Personally, actively coming to him for nourishment and refreshment. It's appropriating Jesus in an act of commitment. Again, without faith, impossible to please God. But with it, with faith, what does a person do? They come, and they're fed in their soul. And Jesus says, he'll feed you in such a way that you will never go hungry and never thirst. He's pointing, by the way, immediately to the heavenly eternal situation where there is no hunger or thirst. In this time, Yeah, there's a sort of basic way in which Jesus satisfies us, but we still hunger and thirst. Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. When he says, if you come to me, you will never hunger and thirst again. He is pointing to what we call the eschaton. Now, at this point, he knows that his audience has at best a superficial understanding of what he's talking about. And so he does something that's quite radical. Now, this bread of life discourse is famous, but this shift is important right here in the text. And it's important to understand the context of it. Jesus is going to shift the conversation radically to a kind of uh, another topic, but one that's related. So he says, I told you, you've seen me, and you still don't believe. I want to give you heavenly bread. Focused on earthly bread. But this doesn't mean that either Jesus or his father are thwarted. Right? This is the logic here. Because what Jesus is going to talk about next is election. Right in the middle of the bread of life discourse, he's going to talk about election and predestination. It's all over the Bible. You're going to have to talk about it. The words are in there. The idea is in there. No one gets to... Opt out. Right in the middle of feeding on Jesus' election. This is what people who are struggling to understand the basics, right? Jesus thinks, again, this is Jesus as a completely unorthodox teacher. right? They can't understand the simple concept that there's earthly bread and heavenly bread. You know what I do? I'll talk to them about predestination for a little while. That should clear everything up for everybody, right? Perfect. Jesus is counterintuitive almost all the time in the way he teaches. I am perpetually struck by this the older I get. How completely counterintuitive it is. Oh, you're struggling? Don't worry. 
Probably because you weren't given to me by the Father. So he says in verse 37, all those that the Father gives me will come to me. That, beloved, is what is known as the doctrine of election. It's no simpler than that. Like the first half of John 6, verse 37, should be enough to make everybody a Calvinist. And whoever comes to me, there's human agency and free will. Whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. Drive away. There you have it right there. Both things in one verse. Everybody the Father gives to me comes to me. And whoever wants to come, I'll never drive them away. Side by side, they're sitting right there. Divine sovereignty, human freedom. It's an unambiguous statement, really, that there are a people chosen by the Father as a gift for the Son, and those people, unlike the current audience Jesus is addressing, will, in fact, come to him. All the Father gives comes. There is not one who will not come. Yet, yet all are invited to come. Right? The sovereignty of God does not negate this universal call. Whosoever believes will receive life. In fact, the sovereignty of God guarantees the success of the church's evangelistic mission. If you want to see a wonderful little uh, work that puts the sovereignty of God and the church's evangelistic task together, you should get J.I. Packer's little book, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. So again... Notice the text. All those, that's the elect viewed collectively. All those the Father gives me will come to me. And Jesus continues, whoever, that's the elect viewed individually, whoever comes to me under this sweet constraint of grace, I will never drive away. There's no distress or angst in this doctrine, either for Jesus or Paul. We have distressed and angst about it for lots of various reasons. But there's none in the Bible. Right? Jesus never stops, nor does Paul ever stop and say, oh, I know this is a terrible philosophical conundrum, and I know this really makes you feel like a robot or an automaton, so let me, let me try it another way. They just glory in the doctrine. Right? One should never think, maybe I'm not chosen. You should just come to Jesus, or keep coming to Jesus, and he will never drive you away. Right? That's Jesus' answer. I don't know. Pastor, I don't know if I'm chosen, I don't know if I'm alive, I struggle. Well, come to Jesus. Just keep coming to him. Anyone who comes to him, he never drives him away. That's the sign you're elect. You're clinging to Jesus. So notice this. The father gives and the son keeps and he guards. The son takes personal, full responsibility for your total final salvation. Every last one that the father gives him. He's come to do this, he says, fully and flawlessly because it's his father's will. And he goes on and says, and the father's will is that I lose none, zero, of those the father has given to me. In fact, those the father has given Jesus, he raises them up in glory on the last day. Three times in this text, Jesus says, I will raise them up on the last day. I will raise them up on the last day. I will raise them up on the last day. The saints persevere to the end because Jesus keeps them. Verse 40. 
Well, before I get to verse 40, note, note one more thing. Jesus connects, has already connected believing in him to the coming kingdom where we'll never hunger or thirst again. He does it again here. He says, whoever comes to me, I will raise him up on the last day. So just note that. When, as soon as you come to Jesus, eschatological resurrection glory is in view because you're already tasting it. So verse 40. The Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him has eternal life and is raised up by Jesus on the last day. So notice this. It's been called already having faith in the one sent by the Father. It's been called believing in Jesus. It's been called coming to Jesus. And here, notice here in verse 40, it's called looking to Jesus, which means having a discerning vision, a kind of illumination about who Jesus is as the one sent, the Son of the Father. So let me reiterate, I want to be clear. Why is Jesus doing this here and now? In the middle of a discourse on the bread of life. Well, part of what he's doing is showing that their unbelief, their denseness, their hardness of heart is not going to thwart him or his father. That's part of what he's doing. Right? But he's also saying this, and this is going to be offensive. But he's clearly saying this to the crowd. He's saying only the elect, only those who have this kind of faith, eat the bread of life. That's why there's a discourse on election in the middle of the bread of life discourse. The masses do not eat the bread of life simply because they're in the covenant. It is not your birthright to eat the bread of life. Jesus could not put it any more starkly than this. This is why he interrupts a discourse on the bread of life to talk not about the covenant, not about your inherited privileges, but about election and its visible sign, faith. And they don't like this. They're Jews. They're used to getting everything because they're Jews and they've been circumcised and they're in the covenant. And so they grumble. The whole passage is shaped by wilderness themes. The people already cited Exodus 16, where you have both the gift of manna and you have the grumbling of the people. Right? The, the old manna points to Jesus, the new manna. And if Jesus is the new manna, the bread of life, that means he's the one who sustains us in our wilderness pilgrimage to the heavenly homeland. And even as Israel grumbled in the wilderness, so there's grumbling in this passage multiple times. So they grumble about him because he claims to be the bread that came down from heaven. But they say, look, we know his parents. How can he claim such a thing? Notice what's happened in the text. They missed everything Jesus said about sovereign election. They're back up about eight verses earlier saying, he, he claimed to be the bread of life, but we know his parents. Right? right? Yeah, but they missed everything he said. All the election stuff, phew, that's how it often happens, right? People either just don't hear it, or they can't hear it, or they don't want to hear it. Every one of you who's become Reformed has probably had this experience where after you become Reformed, you open your Bible to Romans chapter 9 and think, how did I possibly read that for the last 30 years and not see that it plainly teaches what Jesus is saying here in John chapter 6? They can't assimilate this doctrine of election. All whom the Father gives to me comes to me. Just 
They missed it. Secondly, they think they know Jesus' origin. They don't know the prologue to this gospel. They don't know that he's the one sent from the Father. From their point of view, it's quite rational to think the claims Jesus, you know, the claims he's making, they're impossible claims. We have your birth certificate. We know where you come from. And then Jesus tells them, stop grumbling. And now, as is often his case, he's going to double down. Right? Because it appears they didn't hear what he said about God's sovereign electing grace. He's going to say it again. Verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Again, I want you to get the scene. He's got a mass of people here who are Jews. They're in the covenant. They saw the miracle of the 5,000. Many of them probably ate. They're following him around. They sort of, kind of, kind of believe in Jesus. But he knows they don't. And he says to them, here, I'm going to explain your unbelief. No one can come to me unless the Father draws them. Drawing here is a very powerful, strong word. It's not wooing. It's often translated dragged. The Father mightily and effectively inclines hardened hearts and wills toward Christ and brings them to Christ. And again, Jesus moves right from this drawing to the final state of affairs. In verse 45, in the New Covenant, he tells us everyone is taught by God. This, by the way, is different than the Old Covenant. You saw that as well in uh, the Hebrews 8 reading. In the end, there are not even teachers in the church. Everyone knows God. Everyone's taught by God. Everyone has the law of God on their hearts and minds. Everyone immediately knows God from the greatest to the least. Everyone, Jesus says, who has heard, notice that in the text, heard from the Father and learned from the Father comes to him. Again, he's enlarging the idea of faith. These and only these have eternal life, Jesus says, because they come to Jesus, who, as he says in verse 48 again, is the bread of life. So I'm going to close with three applications. Now, remember, there's a lot more to say about this discourse, and Lord willing, we'll do it next week. But here, I think we can draw out a few concrete things. The first, I'm going to call these applications sacraments, presumption, and satisfaction. First, sacraments. John 6 is not about the Lord's Supper. It's not about the Lord's Supper. Um, The Lord's Supper is not even instituted yet. It's not going to even be instituted in this year of Jesus' ministry. It's well well over a year away before he institutes it. And the original hearers would have no idea what the supper's about. Now, it's true, Jesus' hearers often have no idea what he's talking about anyway. But they should have an idea about what he's talking about. Here, though, he's not talking about this Lord's Supper. But it's important to see this. Nevertheless, the Lord's Supper is about the realities in John 6. So one way to put this is John 6 is not about the Lord's Supper. But the Lord's Supper is about John 6. Because the Lord's Supper is about how and who eats the bread of life. And Jesus has told us who eats it. For now, let's just note this. 
This anticipates next week a little bit. Eating and drinking have not yet been mentioned in the text. I've talked about them a little bit because it's hard to talk about John 6 without using those words. But they've not been mentioned by Jesus. You know what he's mentioned? Faith and its equivalents. They have been mentioned a half a dozen times. Believing in Jesus as the one sent by the Father. Coming to Jesus. Seeing, the Je- seeing Jesus. Hearing from the Father. Learning from the Father. And appropriating Jesus. All of those metaphors have been used. So personal living faith governs the idea of eating and drinking. Not the other way around. That's the way the discourse goes. Faith, 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 faith. Then he changes the metaphor next week to eating and drinking. So, secondly, presumption. Jesus moves from being the bread of life, perhaps strangely to our ears, into these direct affirmations about election and saving faith. He is rebuking the presumption of his Jewish crowds. We get the bread of life because we're in the covenant and Moses gave it to us. Our ancestors ate in the wilderness. Something new is happening here. Right? They had a shallow, misguided faith. They saw some signs. They wanted free bread. But they don't have true living faith. Jesus does not say here, hey, that's fine. The bread of life is for everybody who's in the covenant. He doesn't say that. Right? Oh, you went to church your whole life? That's fine. You'll, get, you'll, you'll inherit the eschatological kingdom. Instead, he says, only those given to me by the Father, only those who hear from the Father, only those who've learned from the Father, only those who come to me, only those who see me, who believe in me, only they have eternal life. And that means only they partake of the bread of life. I mean, you may eat the meal. The crowds ate the the bread. But they didn't eat the bread of life. It's a rebuke to their presumption. It's also a change in the way some of the Old Testament meals worked. But it is not meant, Jesus does not mean this to drive the crowds to despair. He's trying to wake them up. Whoever comes to him, he says, he's going to keep you. He will not cast you out. Right? So if you're doubting or struggling or wrestling with your conscience or your faith, listen to this. Come to Jesus. Look to him. And you feed on him by faith perpetually. Right? Perpetual dependent faith precludes presumption. I tried to make that alliteration. Perpetual faith precludes presumption. If you are clinging to Jesus, no matter how desperately or how confused, you can be confident of this. The Father has given you to him and drawn you to the Son. It's a very concrete exhortation. Finally, the third application is satisfaction. You step back and you ask yourself, why this discourse? Why does Jesus refer to himself as the bread of life? Well, it's because he wants to nourish us. He wants to cause us to be satisfied, to flourish as human beings. 
Right? The, the, the assumption here is outside of him, there's no enduring satisfaction. All other food is dying food. Right? Leave, the, leave the groceries out and turn the fridge off and you'll see, right? Corruption, death, decay. Adam eats in rebellion. Now all eating is under a curse. Dying people eat dying food. They keep dying. So they have to eat more dying food. It's morbid, I know. Every time I say it, people tell me, oh, goodness, that's so morbid that you look at things like that. I, mean, I think it would be a great restaurant slogan, actually. <laughs> dying people eat dying food, so they keep returning to eat more dying food. But this is why, in the nature of the case, even in eating and drinking, we can't get lasting satisfaction, right? I mean, you eat a little bit, and it's enjoyable, you eat a little bit more, and then now you need an antacid, right? There's, there's, a, there's a limit to the kind of satisfaction you can get. You, yes, you can get a kind of impersonal, uh, imperfect, partial happiness out of earthly goods. The food that perishes is good for a little while, right? You eat the cheeseburger, you enjoy it. But if you eat that second cheeseburger, that's not going to be good, right? And guess what? You're going to need to eat another cheeseburger a month from now because the enjoyment from the first cheeseburger is gone as right after you ate it. So Jesus is trying to say, look, look you can, you're not going to get from created things this kind of deep satisfaction. What you get from me as the bread of life is face-to-face communion with God because that's what you were designed for. To eat and drink with him in glory before the face of the Holy Trinity. So come in faith. Look to see Hear, learn from the Father. For as we'll see next week, that is the substance of what it means to eat the bread of life. And the one to whom you come, do not forget this. Jesus has personally undertaken on your behalf to guard you, to be responsible for your full and final salvation. He's the bread of indestructible life, and he will raise you up on the last day. Amen.